Hello and welcome to Falmouth Vineyard's audio podcast. We're really grateful that you're joining us today. Our vision is to see Cornwall coming alive through the hope and freedom that Jesus brings. To find out more about who we are or how to connect with us, visit falmouthvineyard.org. We'd love to hear from you. Good to see you this morning. Um, Part two, mini-series, Prodigal Son, Prodigal Grace. Funky graphic appears behind me as I looked at the parable in Luke chapter 15 of the Prodigal Son, as it's probably titled in your Bible. And we concentrated the 14 very short, abbreviated, quick, some would say unbelievable, minutes on the youngest son. Do you remember what happened? And if you missed it at all, I thought instead of me summarizing it with my boring voice, we could nick a video from the Bible Project. If you haven't checked out bibleproject.com or the Bible Project YouTube channel, I would thoroughly recommend it. So let's watch them summarize this story instead of me. Would that be all right? So Jesus throws these dinner parties as a symbol of how God's kingdom is here for the sick and the poor, people who could never pay him back. Jesus also attends banquets with Israel's religious leaders. Yeah, and he lays into them for becoming an arrogant, exclusive social club. But they don't get it, and so he tells them a famous parable that goes like this. There was a father who had two sons. The older son is trustworthy and honors his father. And the younger son, he's a mess. He rebels and cashes in his inheritance to travel far away and blow it all on partying and being stupid. And then there's a famine in the land and he runs out of money. So he has to scrape by by taking care of somebody's pigs. And he's so hungry he wants to eat the pig slop, at which point it occurs to him, if I'm going to be a farmhand, I might as well go home and work for my dad. At least I won't be eating pig food. So he treks back home, rehearsing his apology. Now, the father is certain that his son did not survive the famine. But then, one day, he sees someone walking down the road. It's his son. He's not dead. And so the father runs to him and embraces his son, kissing him all over. The son starts his speech. Dad, I don't deserve to be your son. Maybe I could come and work for you. But before he can finish, the father calls his servants to go get the nicest robe, new sandals, a fancy ring for his son. They are to prepare the best food for a banquet. It is time to celebrate. Now later that day, the older brother arrives from a long day working in the field to discover his long lost loser of a brother has come home and they're celebrating. And he gets angry. And think about it. He's been faithful to his father all of these years. He never got a party like this. And then this disgrace of a family member comes home and they're going to celebrate him? It's disgusting. He refuses to join the banquet. So the father finds already in our family. Everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate your brother because he was lost. And now he's found. He was dead. But now he's alive. Jesus wants the religious leaders to see the outsiders the way God sees them, as sons and daughters that are being reclaimed from death. Jesus' kingdom community was wide open to anybody. The only entry requirement is to humble yourself and recognize your need for God's mercy. And so the religious leader's rejection of Jesus and his crew is actually a rejection of the God of Israel. The leaders don't like all this. And so as Jesus' road trip comes to an end, the conflict is at a boiling point. Yeah, he's going to ride towards Jerusalem for Passover as they plot to take his life. And that's what the next section of Luke is all about. So good, isn't it? It's so good. So this morning, we are going to be concentrating on the elder son. 
Um, it's not such a romantic story as the younger son story. And it isn't sometimes covered when you teach on the parable at all. It's kind of left at the party for the younger son. And then people just move on. And I said last week that the, the three parables, um, there are three parables about finding lost things in this chapter. And Jesus is talking to a crowd that includes sinners, typical sinners like tax collectors, prostitutes, but also the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And this first story is about a farmer who has lost his sheep and he leaves the 99 to go and look for it. And when he finds it, he invites his friends over for a party because he's found the sheep that was lost. And then Jesus talks about a coin. A woman loses one of 10 coins and she eventually finds it and does exactly the same thing. She calls her friends and her neighbors and invites them to celebrate because she has found what was lost. In the story of the lost son, the son returns to the father after coming to his senses, looking at the pig food and going, what am I doing here? The father runs out to meet him. He is overjoyed. He restores him to the family, throws a party. He asks his servants to prepare a feast, not just any feast. And some of these little details can get overlooked because it's culturally very different to where we are now. They kill the fattened calf. This isn't a normal meal it's not even a normal feast. This wasn't commonly eaten. Meat wasn't commonly eaten. This was reserved for very special occasions. Weddings, those type of things. And what I'm trying to say is this is not just like Friday night with the kids at home. This is not burger and chips. This is not just a normal barbecue where you're whacking your sausages on there. This is effectively like a royal banquet. And verse 25 is where we come into the story. The elder son hears the music from the party as he returns from working in the field. And he calls out to one of the servants, what is going on? What's all the commotion about? What has happened? What have I missed? And they say, your brother who was lost, he has returned. Now the elder brother causes a scene. And I love this because it's so realistic, isn't it? Like Bible is so brutal in its honesty. He gets angry grumpy and refuses to go in have you ever thought about why why does he have this kind of reaction why does he get so angry why does he refuse to celebrate why does it get to him so much and there could have been a number of reasons the younger brother has had his share of the estate and different versions i've read this week have either been around either having half of the estate been transferred to the younger brother or a third because he's the younger brother and the older brother would have got two-thirds anyway He's looking at his inheritance being spent on this big, expensive party. And then he hears his father has killed the prize fattened calf. So maybe he's thinking, what a waste of money. This was my inheritance the father is now spending. And also he might remember the shame and the disgrace that the younger brother, his younger brother, has caused his father. Leaving in the way that he did. Causing shame on the family by demanding his inheritance before his dad is dead. Anger sometimes reveals our true character. In verse 29, look, all of these years I've been slaving for you. Luke 15, verse 29. I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. The older brother says, I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed orders. I have done what is right, what is good. I've worked hard. I've complied. I've done everything 
that was expected of me, so I deserve this, not him. I, party, I have never disobeyed you, so I'm not coming to that party. You see, the youngest son's sin is almost obvious in the story. He was bad. What did they say in the, in the video? He just did stupid stuff. It's like he rebelled. He wanted the father's possessions, but not the father. The sin alienated him from the father. The elder brother has a different problem. It's not a problem of like self-indulgence. It's a problem of religiosity and legalism. He's good. He's too good almost. And that goodness and self-righteousness alienates him from the father. Both are lost, but one in goodness and one in badness. And the elder brother's outlook on life is given away in how he speaks to his father. I've been slaving away. You never even gave me a goat to have a barbecue with my mates. I wonder who would you side with? Father or elder brother? The elder brother goes on, but when this son of yours, not even when my brother did this, no, when this son of yours... If you're a parent, you may have had this. Or if you've got a dog, you might have said, look what your child has done. Like, you need to clean that up. That's not my response. Look what your dog has I've said this many times over the last two months. Look what your dog has done to our lounge. It is now covered in pampas grass fluff or other stuff that he's eaten and destroyed. Your dog. I'm disassociating myself from this decision as a family. When this son of yours, he is no longer his brother. Isn't that fascinating? He's no longer my brother, it's your son. And again, this son of yours has squandered your property with prostitutes. It's to do with the final financial impact almost that it will have on the elder brother. At no point is there a sense of relief that his brother is safe, that the family's been reunited, that this will be that he will be with his brother again, and that his father and his mother probably you don't hear about in the story. We'll be happy. He feels wronged by the father's generosity towards the younger son. But why? Why does he feel so wronged? Because this elder son feels that he deserves it and he has earned it. He doesn't care about the father's heart in this. He cares about his possessions. He cares about his share of the estate being wasted. Two lost sons. One lost in his badness and one lost in his self-righteousness, in his goodness. And in this story, Jesus redefines sin. It can look like bad behavior, or it can look like good behavior. What is the reaction of the father to this scene that the elder son is, is making? Verse 31, my son. There's real tenderness, I think. My son, said the father, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I find this verse so powerful. My son, he's trying to diffuse his son, reminding him of their relationship. You are always with me and everything literally I have is yours because he'd already given away the younger brother's inheritance. But don't do this. You, my son, you are always with me. And here is the root of the gospel. Here is the root of the good news about Jesus and our faith. The gospel is, obeying, is about obeying God to get God 
rather than to get things. We don't obey God to get a status or a title or to get blessings or benefits. We obey God to get God. God is sufficient. The thing we have lost is intimacy and relationship. It's proximity and it's presence, not possessions or blessing. That's the parable. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for us personally? What does that mean for us as a church? I think we can, in both ways we can be challenged. And I think we can be challenged in three ways personally. In this parable, and I have nicked quite a lot from The Prodigal God by Tim Keller, which is a fantastic book. I was going to show it up, but I've left it on my seat. Brilliant book. In this parable, Jesus redefines our view of God the Father. It's interesting, it's quite subtle, but in this picture, in this parable, Jesus paints a picture of what God the Father is like, what his character is like, how he knows him intimacy and how he would react in this situation. And how the Father in heaven would and does act towards the lost and the spiritually dead. So what is your view of God the Father? You might, like me, project your relationship with your father, both good and bad, on the exact image of God onto the father in the story. And you might have to stop and think about the way you think about God and how we approach God in light of this story. So he redefines our view of God the Father. He redefines what sin looks like. The obvious sin of the younger son, the self-indulgence, the selfishness, the rebelliousness of the younger brother, and the not-so-obvious, more prideful, religious, legalistic sin of the self-righteous elder brother. The brother who felt he earned and deserved the relationship with the father. He deserved it, his obedience demanded it almost. Both alienated from the father, one by their badness and one by their goodness. Romans chapter 3 verse 20 just says this. Therefore... No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. Verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned. And have fallen short of the glory of God and are all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Jesus Christ. All have fallen short of God's glory and all have sinned and all are justified by this grace that comes through faith in Jesus. It's a leveler. You think you're too good. You think you're too bad. You think you're just right. All have fallen short of the glory of God. So that's redefining sin, redefining also what salvation looks like. John Wimber had this phrase, he was the founder of the vineyard. He said this, the way in is the way on. The way in is grace. The way of the gospel is grace. A, gr a free gift through faith in Jesus. It's a gift we receive, it's not earned or deserved. That's the benefit and beauty of the cross and the faith we put into Jesus' life, into his death and into his resurrection. This relationship with the Father. Grace is the way in and we don't grace. Grace should define the culture and the activity of the church. Grace is the searching love of the Father. Grace is the embrace of the Father. Grace is the party thrown by the Father. And one of the things... I've noticed in my conversations as a pastor is that 
and I'm going to generalize all the people I've met, not all of them, but I've noticed that broken people love Jesus. People generally don't have an issue with Jesus, but they really struggle with the church and they really struggle with organized religion. Why is that? Could it be because we've forgotten the way of grace towards the younger brothers in the community? Have we lost sight as the church, Big C, of who Jesus came to seek and to save? Jesus said it's the sick that need a doctor. And I've been stirred and challenged this week about our hospitality as a church. If you go to our website, many of you don't, um, falmouthvineyard.org forward slash vision, just looking at the analytics, that's just uh, one for free. Um, but it's not for you, it's for the people that come in. Anyway, so anyway, falmouthvineyard.org forward slash vision, you can listen to the first four meetings we had in the life of the church back in 2018. Through the wonder of technology, they did actually were actually recorded. The first talk was on extravagant welcome. And I talked about the prodigal son. And I talked, I was going to play a clip, but it wouldn't have worked. Um, and I talked about what a community would look like that took the welcome of God and gift of grace seriously. We feel, and it's ingrained within our community, that welcome and hospitality are vital to the health of the church. Welcoming isn't a task for the welcome team. It's an extension of the grace we have all been shown. I am passionate about us extravagantly welcoming everyone that comes through the doors. All of us, all of the time. Whether it's into Vineyard Kids, whether it's into a church service, whether it's into an event, whether it's into Grow Baby, Squidlets, or a morning service, whatever the context, context that we would be as a community expressing this grace that God has shown us in extravagant welcome. And I feel that if you're a follower of Jesus here this morning, that we are called to demonstrate this welcome. Reflect the degree to which we understand the depth of the price paid for God to bring us home. It's not just a welcome team responsibility. Welcome's for everyone. Or else this turns into a church club, and I don't want to go to a church club. That sounds rubbish. There's another incredible parable that Jesus tells in Matthew's Gospel about the workers in the vineyard. I haven't got time to go through the whole thing. A landowner, so I'm going to summarize it in my bestest way. Um, a landowner has employees. Okay, He goes out and finds employees to work in his vineyard. And he finds some of them at like six o'clock in the morning. And he agrees to pay them a day's wage, which was one denarius. And then he goes out again at nine o'clock in the morning and he finds more people. And he just says, I'll pay you what is fair. And then he goes out again at midday and he says, does anyone else want some more work? I'm going to pay you what is fair. And then he goes back out at tea time, five o'clock in the evening and says, I've still got work in my vineyard. I will pay you what is fair. The workmen get called at the end of the day at 5 p.m. and gives them one denarius. And the workers that have been there so much longer, some since dawn are thinking, my goodness, if these guys got one denarius, what are we going to get? Well, they, well, they've only worked a few hours. How much are we going to get? And, but they've all been promised one denarius. They all receive one denarius. The guys that started at 9, 12, whenever else I said, 3 and 5. They all get one denarius. And they begin to grumble. It's not fair. We worked all day, even at the hottest point of the day. But the foreman says, it's not unfair. You have been given exactly what you were promised. One denarius. 
I want to give, and it says in the parable, I want to give the one who has worked last the same as you. Don't I have a right to do what I want with my own money? And then verse 15. I haven't actually said what chapter it is. Well, it's not very helpful. Anyway, it's in Matthew. I'm going to say 20. It's quite late on. Um, verse 15. He then just wallops them with this. Or are you envious because I am generous? Are you envious how God is generous with his grace towards us? Everyone is welcome and they are welcome to come as they are. The father in the story embraces the son in his mess, in his dirt, in his pig swilled covered clothes, in his sweat and his brokenness. And he clothes him in this new robe and the church is to extend that welcome extravagantly, even though it might get messy. So how do we keep our hearts soft? Partly it's about recognizing the love of the father towards both sons. The love of the father, the acceptance of the father towards us, despite our brokenness. For both sons, he goes out to them. He doesn't wait for them to get clean and repent and get their lives in order. He goes out to them. He meets them where they're at. He goes out to them in different ways. To the younger brother, there is an outrageous and extravagant offer of grace. To the older brother, he quietly goes out to reason. Please come into the party. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as that dutiful servant slaving away or the embraced son? I think it's important to think about it because it impacts our attitude towards others. If you are secretly in your heart trying to earn salvation earn your way back into God's good books. Earn it earn it by doing stuff, things that you would deserve. Good, good things. Then rather than solely relying on the grace and forgiveness through Jesus, you will expect others to earn their salvation too. You will expect a certain level of behavior, of commitment. And the danger is we can become judgmental, judgmental and critical. And if you read these three parables together in Luke 15 about the things that are lost and found together, you realize that there is someone missing in this story. Because it just ends on that conversation with the father and the son, the elder son. It doesn't say, and the elder son came to his senses and walked into the party and they had a really good time and everyone lived happily ever after. It just says, full stop. You don't know what happens to the elder son in the story. And what you realize is there is someone missing from this story who we will talk about on Easter Sunday. Give it away. It's Jesus. Um, it's the person that's going out. Like, What was the role of the older brother in this story? What should he have been doing instead of working in the fields? He should have been searching for his lost brother. He should have been out looking for him rather than just going back to work. Oh, he's gone. Okay, well, fine. He's dead to me as well. On Easter Sunday, we're going to be thinking about the true or ultimate elder brother who, instead of being bitter towards the lost, goes to find them, to seek them out, and to save them. Cliffhanger, two weeks' time, Easter Sunday. That'd be all right. Um, why don't you stand? Uh, we just we love to invite God and just to pray for each other at the end of the service. And it may be something I have said that's impacted you. It may be. You want prayer for something completely different. And maybe you've got a job interview coming up this week or physical healing or, I don't know, 
something you just appreciate someone to come alongside and just pray with you. And this week in small group, we talked about prayer ministry. And I just want to give permission, if you're in a small group, um, to pray this morning, to be looking for people to pray for. And, and go through really simple things. Ask someone's name. Ask if someone wants something specifically prayed for or just to invite God's presence and bless what God is doing. And then pray your simplest, quickest, easiest, bestest prayer. It doesn't have to be full of flowery language. These and thys and thuses. It just has to be you being normal and partitioning on their behalf before God, intercessing. And then ask them, how does it feel? Did God say anything to you? Was that accurate or not? Or if you're praying for healing, then you might just want to say, oh, should we pray again into this situation? Or it may be that God in that moment highlights something outside of what they've said. And you might want to offer it in a very sensitive way and just say, I've just got this feeling. I've just got a sense God could be saying this. God might be saying that. Don't, we don't give ultimates when we're trying to um, communicate what God is saying because we don't see fully. We see in part. And then just pray. And I want to give permission if you're in a small group in the life of the church. And we just say, if you're in a small group, just say there's some accountability. We know you're in the family. That was not in my notes or anything. But I thought it just good because you might be thinking, I don't know if I'm allowed to pray for people. You're allowed to pray for people if you're committed into a small group. Would that be okay? Um, there might be people behind you that need prayer. If you're looking straight forward, you might miss them. Okay. So we just invite God's presence. And see what God wants to do. So, yeah, let's just pray. Lord God, we, we thank you for this story. We thank you for this parable. We thank you for the extravagant grace that you show us, both in our, almost in our goodness and in our badness, in the way we try and earn our salvation, in the way we just realize our inadequacy. And I'm aware this morning that there'll be people in all sorts of different camps that are just desperate for your grace, or actually they might have realized that they've been trying to earn it in, all along. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you speak to us? Would you minister to us?